Good evening. It's good to see you all here. A um, couple of announcements. Tomorrow night, the high school fellowship, instead of meeting here in the fellowship hall, they're going to be meeting at the Harrison's house. And uh, you can pick up directions at the youth information table in the main foyer. So there's a, we're having, some of you knew Paul Turner who went to church here, went to be with the Lord this week. And so his memorial service is tomorrow night at seven. And then they're going to have a, a, a dinner or, or, you know, refreshments or something up in the fellowship hall. So having high school kids running around during a funeral isn't probably the best deal. So they're going to the Harrisons where they can run around all they want, chasing Jonathan. And uh, so you can get a map if you don't know where that is. Also, it says, please pick up an information sheet at the youth information table if you're signed up to go on the Mexico trip this coming Monday through Wednesday. So it's too late to sign up for it, but if you signed up for it, the information sheet is there. Also, somebody gave me an announcement. It was sitting on my desk. It's right by my phone. Uh, oh, it's the women's thing. Um, the women, this, well, this weekend is the women's retreat, and so normally we're scheduled to have the women's study this Tuesday, but because I'm assuming that they'll be cleaning up after their husbands after they get home. No, I don't know why. I, I just think they'll be so filled with the Spirit they can just do without a Tuesday night. I don't know what it is, but so they're not meeting <coughs> this Tuesday. <coughs> and then... They didn't want to meet one Tuesday later because it would mess up the um, home fellowships. So they're meeting the Tuesday that they would normally meet uh, in two, two weeks from this Tuesday. And that's the one that, is it a tea or something? I know it's something special. They're going to have a tea, and that's kind of the last um, thing for the women's ministries until we get to the summer. So um, everyone's invited to come to that tea, whether you've been participating in the study or not, as long as you're a woman. And uh, so you'll be hearing more about that, but right now you know you have next Tuesday night off at least. And I think that's all the announcements. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word, we need your help. We desire for you to illuminate your word. We know that when it doesn't make sense to us, it's, it's our fault. It's not your communication skills. This is breathed by you. So Lord, I pray that you would prepare our ears so that we could hear that which you would speak to us. Lord, we also again lift up our uh, soldiers, the men and women who are fighting over in the Middle East right now. And Lord, we thank you so much for just a great week for them and seeing Baghdad fall. And, and that's just awesome. But Lord, I pray that you would keep them safe still, that you would help them to root out all of the evil that that needs to be taken out. I pray that they'll be able to find anything that they need to find and that God, more than anything, that through the Iraqi people being freed, they wouldn't just be freed to serve a, a dead religion some more, but Lord, that somehow your gospel would penetrate that nation in a way that it hasn't up till this point. And God, I pray that our government will use all of the influence they can to at least allow freedom of religion and, and tolerance for Christianity. And Lord, we'd just love to see these people turned, set free, not just from a, from a horrible dictator, but set free from the dictator that sin is in their lives and that they could understand that you want to set them free indeed. So God, just please work. And again, minister to our soldiers, protect them, 
help them to sense your hand on them in a way that will draw them closer to you when they come back. I pray that our nation at this time wouldn't get puffed up with pride, but that we would be humbled by what an amazing job you do at protecting us and, and at leading and guiding leaders who look to you, who trust in you for, for wisdom. And so we thank you for all that you're doing, all that you're going to do. And Lord, again, now just with your word, I pray that you would let us know that you're speaking directly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going through the book of Hebrews, and we didn't quite make it through Hebrews 6 last time, so you can turn over there and we'll wrap up Hebrews 6. I don't know if you can ever wrap up Hebrews 6. It's, as I said last week, one of the most difficult Many commentators say the most difficult passage in the, in the Bible. And so, and it's funny because Paul before, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, I think it was Paul, forgive me if I keep calling him Paul. If you believe it's someone else, just think of Paul as a nickname for that other guy. But <laughs> he was in chapter five talking about, you guys, I want to talk to you. He started to bring up the subject of Melchizedek, Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he talked about the fact that you guys aren't ready for this yet. And then he kind of scolds them and says, you know, you're, you're still sucking on milk and you should be eating meat. You should be growing. You should get past all the little basic fundamentals of the faith and, and you ought to be maturing and you're not. And then after, after chewing them out like that, then he says, by the way, here's a chapter that he dumps on him, and, and people for ever since have been trying to figure out what in the world chapter 6 means. And then after totally confusing people in chapter 6, then he spends chapter 7 talking about Melchizedek. So interesting approach. We talked last week about the different interpretations of this passage in Hebrews 6 that, that says that you know, those who have been enlightened, well, it says that uh, it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit, verse 4, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. <clears throat> we talked about all the different theories as to what this means. The reason it's a problem, if you weren't here, is that Christianity is kind of divided up among people who believe that you can be a Christian and then you can lose your salvation, and people who believe that once you become a Christian, you can never lose your salvation. And generally, those are Calvinists and Arminianists, although it, it isn't that neat of a division between them. The fact is, if you really study Calvinism and Arminianism, neither one intends to teach that an extreme position on one way or the other on this particular question. It just so happens over the years the Calvinists have just all decided, you know, it's easy to get saved, once saved, always saved, you couldn't lose it if you wanted to, and Arminianists have decided, hey, you can lose it every Friday night. And the truth is Arminius didn't have that position, Calvin didn't have that his position either. But the problem with this passage is it's a problem for anyone who believes in eternal security because it talks about somebody falling away. And, not, and it's a problem for an Arminianist because it says if you fall away, it's impossible to come back. So no one likes the passage. That's why it's such a difficult passage. 
There are some passages that, you know, when Jesus says, my sheep are my voice, I know them, they follow me, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Someone who believes in eternal security goes, yeah, it's a great verse. When there are passages that talk about people falling away, having your name blotted out of the book of life or, you know, or, you know, things like that, then, you know, that makes Calvinists nervous, that makes Arminianists happy, but Hebrews 6 doesn't make anyone happy except people that sell theology books because it just, it, it's not easy to ascertain exactly what he's talking about here. Um, and I, I went through the different views. Basically, people are divided on whether or not, first of all, it's talking about Christians or not. You know, when it says that you've been you know, enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. A lot of people would say, obviously, that's a Christian. There are other people who would say, just as convincingly, obviously, that's not a Christian. They've tasted, they've been partakers. It sounds like they kind of dabbled in it, but they really didn't dive in all the way. And so, and then there are some other reasons, like for instance, later when it says, I'm convinced of better things of you, things that accompany salvation, in verse 9, you go, see, he's talking about obviously, he's saying these are not saved people, but if you have salvation, then this isn't a problem for you. <coughs> it's not that simple, but people are divided on that. Now, once the people get divided, there's a question of, is this something that's really possible? Or is this something that is simply a hypothetical case that's impossible? And grammatically, that's a possibility. It's unlikely, however. The idea that he would say, look, if this did happen, it'd be impossible to be renewed to repentance. But of course, it can't happen. So therefore, the problem with the passage is, well, then what are you warning us about? If, if you're warning someone, it ought to be because there's some you know, basis of, of uh, danger that's involved. Other people play with the passage in different ways. And, and uh, well, one, I know John Corson's position is that he says it's impossible that he, John Corson believes that you can fall away from your salvation and it's impossible to be renewed to repentance. But he goes over to where um, Jesus, after talking to the rich young ruler and, and the disciples had said to him, you know, or Jesus had said, well, you know, it's tougher than a camel to go through the eye of a needle or easier than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, well, with God, you know, he said, you're right, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So John cites that and says, it is impossible, but it's impossible for any of us to get saved. And, you know, yet we do anyway, because God's in the business of doing the impossible. And that's an interesting twist on, on the passage. Not a lot of people um, share that, but some, there have been some commentators going way back who have suggested that, so that's a possibility. So, since you're thoroughly confused, listen to the tape from last week, you'll be even more confused. The point, he's obviously warning about something. And it's, you know, you could certainly say maybe these people aren't really saved or maybe they are. You can argue that back and forth. But really, in terms of practicality, I think that what we need to look at is the fact that there are people who at one time certainly had every appearance of being saved. They were in some sort of a relationship with God. Now, is it possible to be in that kind of a relationship with the Lord and then someday not be? And Jesus answers that for us when he said there are going to be people who did miracles in his name, people who, you know, say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I never knew you. 
And again, he doesn't say, I don't know you anymore. He says, I never knew you. So it's certainly possible for people to have all the appearance of a relationship with the Lord and not have eternal life. And again, like I talked about last week, I, I don't get into, I, I try not to get in the midst of a big debate on eternal security. And the reason is because whatever you once had, if you don't have it anymore, then what you had wasn't eternal life. And I like to define Christianity as someone who has eternal life. Eternal life, by definition, continues. And so I don't think it's a real problem. I think it's almost a semantical problem in a way. The real issue is, are you really saved? And how do you know? And Jesus says, the way that you know is you abide. And if you don't abide, well, then whoops, I guess you were missing something. Now, what were you missing and what did you have? Who knows? It's not even important. Anyone who is not walking with Jesus, though, anyone who is not really abiding in him, shouldn't take any comfort in a doctrine of eternal security, whether you want to admit to eternal security or not. It should not be a doctrine that makes you feel really comfortable if you're not walking with the Lord. It's a doctrine that ought to make you feel uncomfortable because if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're walking with him, you should feel great. But to take the question and say, what if I... And, you know, I know I'm a Christian today. And what if I just decided I didn't want to be a Christian anymore? Now, if I decided that, would God make me be a Christian anyway? Does he take away our free will at at one point and say, you prayed the prayer, you really meant it, now you're stuck. And now you can't change your mind any longer. I have a hard time personally believing that my choice could be taken away that severely. And, and so I believe that if I decided I didn't want to walk with the Lord anymore, I decided I didn't want to be saved, I don't think God's going to force me to do it. See, he hasn't taken away my freedom of choice in every other area of my life, and I certainly wouldn't think he would in an area that's so important. Other people would say that, hey, being sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being placed within you does something to you, and now you can't. But there's nothing in the Bible that would assure someone that it's okay you can change your mind and you're still going to be saved. It, it's, nobody is able to take, pluck them out of my father's hand. It doesn't say you can't take yourself and put yourself out of the father's hand. Now, if I chose to do that and walk away from the Lord, would you say that I was saved and then lost? Or would you say that I was never saved? It doesn't matter. If I end up being lost, I did it because I chose not to walk with the Lord. Should anyone worry about this? Of course not. Because if you want to be saved, you will be. If you, if you desire to walk with God, that'll happen. I'm, I believe I'm absolutely secure. I don't think there's any way in the world anything could ever happen to me that would even cause me to desire all of a sudden to go to hell. You know, to just go, you know, heaven sounds boring. I don't like harp music. I think I'll go to hell. I, it's not going to happen. So I'm secure because nothing else can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Can I separate myself from it? If so, then... Everyone's going to be happy. They'll have a different explanation for it. The Arminianist would say, boy, you were saved, Dave, but now you got lost and you're going to hell. The Calvinist would say, hey, Dave, you weren't saved at all. It proved that you weren't saved by the fact that you left. Either way, I'm going to hell if I decide to. Either way, I'm going to heaven if I want to do that. And so pay your nickel, take your choice on that. It's, uh, I'm not going to, I don't take a real strong 
position on it one way or the other because I really don't think it matters. I don't think it's important. And there are a lot of people who will use this doctrine in an absolutely wrong way to either make Christians who slip and fall to feel like they're in danger of losing their salvation if they backslide. And I think that's a mistake. God never does that. He never lays that over people's heads. And at the same time, there are people who, who can excuse all kinds of sin in their life because they believe in eternal security. And that's a big mistake, too, and someday they're going to hear, I never knew you. Again, we looked at 1 John 2. They went out from among us because they weren't really of us. To me, in my way of thinking, if someone leaves Christianity, they must have missed something. I don't know what they had, but it wasn't that relationship with God because that's not something you walk away from. I don't know if anyone will actually walk away from it having had it, um, but it doesn't matter. So as he goes on to say... If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, what he's saying here isn't that, and a lot of commentators make a big deal about the fact that Jesus was only killed once, he was only crucified once, and they refer to Moses being stuck, not going into the promised land because he struck the rock twice, broke that type. It may be some connection here, but the way I read it, a simpler understanding, remember who he's talking to, Jews that are in danger of leaving Christianity and going back into Judaism. And, and I, to me, all that I see in, the, in this little, the end of this verse, is that he's saying, look, Jesus died. Now, if you would leave that relationship with him, you would walk away from what he's done and head back into the old covenant and go back into living in that kind of a way. It's like you're saying that his death meant nothing. It's like you're standing there with those who were crucifying him, yelling, crucify him, crucify him, because if he wasn't the Messiah and he didn't introduce a new covenant, then you ought to jump right on a bandwagon with the other Jews and say, yeah, he should have been killed. Because he's making a claim to something that he isn't. And to, and to deliberately be one of those who's spitting in his face, who's he's striking him and saying, who hit you? What he's saying is, if you want to walk away from your relationship with Jesus Christ and go back to the law, then understand what you've done. You have participated. You have done what those Jews did who stumbled over him and who, who crucified him. And that was a horrible thing that happened, and, and it's like you're participating. Another possible understanding of this particular phrase is, is also, in, in a sense, it, it saying, look, this is the only way to get saved. There's not another cross. There's not going to be another Jesus. You can't crucify him again. Either you believe the gospel or you don't. And if you believe the gospel, it's already been accomplished. If you don't, Nobody else is going to come and die for you. And people today who try to make up their own God, kind of create their own religion, you know, I worship God in my own way. Well, it's too late for that because there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And if you want to invent your own religion, there isn't going to be a perfect God-man there who's going to die for you and pay the penalty for your sins. And so he's basically showing them how, how crazy it would be to look for something else after you have the, the solution right here. And then he goes on and says, the earth drinks in the rain that comes upon it and it bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated and receives blessing from God. But 
If it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. And here, just driving home the idea, probably perhaps reminiscent of Jesus' parable of the, of the seed that was sown on the different soil. And he's saying, look, the rain falls on the ground. If it falls on herb seeds and it grows up, everybody's happy. If it falls on thorn and thistles, everyone's cursing the ground. And so as the word is preached, as the truth is dispensed, the response of, the, of that which receives it determines their end and their value. And so he's saying, hey, you can receive, you can hear, you can be touched by the gospel, by Jesus Christ, but the fruit's gonna ultimately show. If you grow up, you bear fruit, great. Everybody's gonna think it's wonderful that it rained. If you grow up and you become a thorn or a thistle, someone who's not bearing fruit, Somebody who doesn't abide in the vine, as Jesus would have said in John 15, they're taken off and burned and, and picked. And so, again, emphasizing that the issue is that which receives the word. Now he says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now, he may be saying that, look, the guys I'm talking to aren't the ones I'm talking about. But then you wonder why did he even write it to them? But he's basically at least, at the very least, he's saying, don't, I don't want everybody to freak out over this because this isn't, I don't think all you guys are in this place at all. I believe that you have fruit. I believe that you have those things that accompany true salvation. And so, you know, he's just trying to let them know, don't go off crazy about this and start thinking that, you know, you're all in danger, you're all in trouble. It's not what I'm saying. He's saying there is at least a danger, a potential danger to someone. And so everyone should hear this, but at the same time, realize, he says, personally, I don't have anybody in mind. I'm not picking on anyone. I'm not suggesting that there are just vast numbers of you that are going to do this. I'm just sharing this with you. And, and so he says, but, you know, I think better about you. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And so again, speaking of fruit, and he says, I see what you're doing. I see the fruit of what many of you are doing. As you, he says, you've shown toward his name, towards God's name, and that you've ministered to the saints. A response to God is shown by ministering to his people. Not even just by going out and trying to reach the lost. In, he specifically is, no, it's ministering to God's people. It's as we minister to each other that we show fruit. As we minister to each other through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so he's telling them, I see you guys loving each other. I see you guys looking out for each other, encouraging each other. I see you ministering. And when I see you ministering, I know that you're not one of these people who's in danger. Which kind of begs the question, well, what if you're not ministering at all? What does that mean? Well, he didn't address those people specifically. But obviously, if there's no part of our lives that's involved in serving God's people and ministering to each other, reaching out to each other, then... Um, We'd really have to question, you know, is that really a lemon tree if it hasn't grown any lemons? I don't know. Maybe there's someone who's expert enough to know that that lemon tree is just so sick that it's not going to grow lemons. But to the amateur, 
I know it's a lemon tree if there are lemons on it. And he's just saying basically the same kind of analogy. Look for the fruit. And he said, I see it in you guys. I see what's going on. And he said, we desire that each one of you know the same, show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you don't become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he says, I want you guys to hang in there with diligence, with that assurance of hope. If you're not being diligent, you'll never have the assurance of hope. If I look at my own life, and he's talking about people who are borderline, whether they're saved or not, and theologians are arguing whether they are or not, and if I fall into that category, then I'd be a little uncomfortable just in case one side or the other is right or wrong. And, and yet, if I look at my life and I realize, well, at least I'm ministering. If you ask me, hey, what ministry are you involved in? And you go, you've got it. You know, here's what I do. You know, I greet people at church. I serve as an usher. I come to the prayer meetings and just pray. I teach children's ministry. I, do, I help with the youth group. I, do, I go on Mexico trips. I do, then when you do that, you go, hey, the only way that comes about is from a reality of life. That's the kind of fruit that he's talking about. And so if when I ask you, if I said, everybody take out a piece of paper and write down what your main ministry is right now. And if you'd go, oh, no, I can't think of anything. Well, then he's saying, Why? There ought to be something. Why? Because God's just trying to con you into doing stuff? No. It's because for your own assurance, if I say, hey, what's your main ministry? And three or four things pop up, then you have that assurance of hope that he's talking about. And so it's just, it's one of those things that we get security as we start to look like what he says Christians look like and function and live like them. Now, you don't minister in order to, in order to assure your salvation. That's just a little litmus test to see how you're doing. And it's something to pray about if you really, you know, you don't see that your ministry is, is prominent or evident. Now, it might be that your ministry is just witnessing to people at your work. It may be that your ministry is just ministering to your family. And that's fine. It doesn't matter what your ministry is. But he says, you'll be more sure of yourself spiritually if you can look at your life and see that you're ministering. And he says, I see that in you guys, and I know where you're coming from. So then he goes on to say in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Now, Abraham, in particular, the big promise to Abraham is he wanted to have a seed. He wanted to have a son. And God promised that that was going to happen. And this quote, actually, um, in uh, verse 14, comes from in Genesis chapter 22. God referring before Isaac was born. And right there when, when Isaac was born, God reiterating his promise. The, one of the first times the promise came along, though, when it was laid clearly out, it was when God actually entered into a covenant with Abraham. And that's what it's talking about. That's what it's referring to here as well. And interestingly enough, Melchizedek, who we find in chapter 5 and in chapter 7, the time when God affirmed this promise and this covenant to, to Abraham was right at the same time when this whole thing with Melchizedek happened. Remember, Lot had gone to live in Sodom. 
And a bunch of kings came and conquered Sodom. And Abraham, just with a handful of servants, went out and whipped up on all these kings. And so the, so the, the kings of Sodom came to him and offered him all kinds of rewards and everything and, and spoils. And, and it was at this time that he met Melchizedek. And we'll look back at that passage in a minute. But after tithing to Melchizedek and, and going away and saying, look, if I'm going to be rich, I want it to be because God made me rich. And then they go, okay, whatever. And they took all their stuff and left. And then Abraham was sitting there thinking, did I just do the right thing? I just gave away all this booty, all this plunder. And what do I get? What's in it for me? And God read his mind and he said, Abraham, I know what you're thinking. But he said, understand this, you've done the right thing. And he said, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And then God promised him that he would give him a son. And God ended up, lay, they, they laid out animals as they would when they would do a contract in those days or a covenant. And both parties would walk through the, the dismembered animals and that was their commitment. And in this case, Abraham got it all ready and waited and waited and waited and finally fell asleep. And then God showed up and walked through by himself, showing that it was a one-sided deal. He wasn't expecting anything from Abraham. He was promising that he was going to take care of him. Now, this passage here is looking back to that event and saying, look at Abraham. He received a promise from God, and he believed it, and he accepted it. And he said, now there are promises that God's making to you. Now, why in the world would you come short of what God wants to do? Why would you want to walk away? Why would you want to return to a, a legalistic system that couldn't save you? And, and Take that and trade away a high priest who understands, who says, you can now come boldly before the throne of grace. And so he uses Abraham as the example and says he patiently endured and he obtained the promise in verse 15. And then he goes on just to say that if man's going to swear anything, make a deal, they have to swear by someone greater. But, the, but he says God doesn't have anybody greater and so he swears it by his own name. He says, listen, you can believe who I am. I'm the one who's making the covenant and I'm going to fulfill it. And so it says uh, in verse 18 that by two immutable, that is unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or comfort who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that's set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So he says, God has promised to you to complete the work that he started in your life. And if you're starting to miss the old way of life, if you're starting to think we need to get a little more religion involved here, this is a little too hang loose for me, and you decide to return to a legalistic way of relating to God, he said, you're blowing it big time. Because God can't lie. He's made the deal. Now just believe him. He can't lie. You can trust him. And that for us is an anchor to our soul. And he says, I want you to find consolation. I want you to find comfort and encouragement in that. And that is something that we need every day of our lives. 
to understand that no matter what we face, no matter what we're going through, no matter how hard life gets, it's not outside the control of God. It's not, it hasn't gotten away from him and he has not broken his promises, nor will he break his promises. And that's our anchor. That's our hope. That's what we can absolutely depend on is a God who does something like that. And that's the God who says, now come on in. I want to be in fellowship with you. I want you to know that you can come into the Holy of Holies anytime you want. And so transitioning in this chapter from saying, look, some of you guys are flirting with going back. And for us, we could say going back to the world, going back to your religion, finding your roots or whatever. Walking back into a, into a legalistic way of dealing with God. And he's saying, if you do that, then you're stuck and you will someday find yourself so lost, maybe you can't find your way back. And he says, now, I don't, most of you aren't going to do this. I see the fruit in your life. But he said, think about Abraham. It's a long haul. When God makes promises, sometimes it takes a while for him to accomplish it. And there may be days, there may be weeks, there may be years when you think it's not working. When you think your relationship with God just haven't, hasn't delivered the goods. And he would say, think about Abraham. This is our anchor of our soul, the high priest. Where else are we going to go? Like Peter said to Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So here it's, come on, this is your anchor. Interestingly, in the early church, one of the big symbols, they find it actually carved on the walls of, uh, of Christian graffiti, more so than even the fish that everybody has on their cars that was also an early church symbol underground. But the anchor was also one that they used even more to, to remind them this is the anchor that we have. He's the one that we can depend on. He's on solid ground. We can be tossed about. But as long as the anchor's solid, we're going to be fine. And so here he's just saying, this we have as an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast. And it, where's the anchor sunk? It's sunk in the presence of God behind the veil. That's where it is. That's the thing that to Jews, I don't care how holy you get as a Jew. I don't care how many sacrifices you make. You're not going into the presence of God. You can't. Only the high priest, only once a year, only on the day of atonement, for the average Jew, I don't care how Jewish you get, you're not going in there. And he's saying, look, we have an anchor that's anchored there. And he's yanking us in. He's reeling us in. He's saying, hey, you can come here anytime you want. So again, emphasizing the, the, just the emptiness of returning to legalism rather than enjoying the freedom, enjoying the grace of God. I've had some friends, I've known different people who got kind of burned out, went through difficult times in their lives with the Lord, struggling with sin and different things. And there are a lot of people nowadays who want to return to an old liturgical form of religion, whether to the Catholic Church or whether to um, the Eastern Orthodox, one of the Eastern Orthodox churches, the desire to go get more religious, the feeling that, you know, we feel kind of shallow here. And what a sad thing, I think, when you, when you come into a relationship with God where you can talk to him without a mediator, where you can confess your sins personally all the time. You don't have to go through priests. You don't have to go through rituals. You don't have to memorize and chant and do all those sorts of things. You don't need all the be kissing statues and bowing down to pictures and everything. And yet there's something inside people sometimes that when they start getting tired, when they start getting frustrated, they just think, 
You know, I want something more. And legalism will always be there as a temptation. Whether it's from a formal church, whether it's from inventing your own religion, or whether it's from walking away completely. Or as some Christians nowadays think that they have to become Jewish. There are Jewish churches that are trying so hard to be Jewish and they love God and they're wonderful people and I have a lot of friends who are really involved with them. But the fact is, the message of the New Testament is that you don't have to become Jewish. You know, you start walking with the Lord, you don't have to go buy a yarmulke. You don't have to, you know, start, you know, saying shalom to everyone. You don't have to, you know, start calling Jesus Yeshua HaMashiach instead of Jesus Christ. No, you don't have to do that. You don't join, we don't need religion. The world has plenty of religion, plenty of people who are struggling and striving to try to earn standing with God. It's already been proven over and over again that does not work. You will never do anything. The grace of God means you will never do anything that will make God love you more. So why do a bunch of stuff that he's not asking you to do when what he's asking you to do is to trust him and to come boldly before his throne? I could go on and on on that, but we'd never get out of here. So chapter 7, now we get into Melchizedek. Melchizedek, this interesting character, this priest that pops up in Genesis chapter 14, disappears just as fast, pops up again in Psalm 110, disappears just as fast, and then he shows up in the book of Hebrews. And that's it. You can know everything there is to know about Melchizedek in just a couple minutes because there's not too much to it. And yet, he's someone that, that, that the writer of Hebrews, Paul, is saying, this is really key. This is central. You Jews need to understand this. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 14 and just pick up the, that part of the story. And we were just talking about the Abram winning the, the freedom for Lot and for the kings of Sodom. And after that happened, and the king of Sodom went out in verse 17, and, and uh, those who were with him, and again, trying to say, hey, you know, you, um, you guys freed us. This worked. This was great. This was a victory. And then in verse 21, the king says, look, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. And Abraham said, nope, I'm not going to do it. You take everything. If I'm going to be rich, it's going to be because God made me rich. And right in the middle between that, in verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, no, no explanation, he just pops up. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tithe of all, 10% of all the stuff that they had at that point. Now, it says that he's a priest, obviously, a priest of God Most High, or El Elohim, like God of gods. So he was a priest, but he was also a king, the king of Salem. Salem means peace. But Salem also was an ancient name for the city of Jerusalem. So perhaps literally a king of, in that area of Jerusalem, but he was a king of, of, of peace as well. Now the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So he's a king of righteousness, he's a king of peace, and he comes with bread and wine. Now what does that make you think of? 
Where did this come from? Genesis 14, it's so old. And here he is coming with the communion trays to meet Abram. And he says to him, you're blessed by God most high, the same God that I'm a priest of. And he's the possessor of heaven and earth. And God's blessed and he's delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, for Melchizedek at this point to show up, how did they know he was a priest? How could you be a priest in those days? This is way before the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. And that's when I say Aaronic priesthood, A-A-R-O-N-I-C, it's of it's Aaron. A few people thought I was saying the Moronic priesthood, and I, I'm not Catholic bashing or anything. I, it's just Aaronic priesthood. I'm trying to try to say it neater. But there was no priesthood. There's no real mention of somebody being a priest and all of a sudden here's this guy who's a priest a king he's got bread and wine he's putting blessings upon Abraham and Abraham you know accepts it from him and and tithes to him no explanation it's just that's the way it is and now over in Psalm 110 you have this prophecy the Psalm of David is as he's prophesying concerning the Messiah and he says the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools and of course we've seen that in Hebrews as well the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion rule in the midst of your enemies your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth the Lord has sworn and will not relent you are a priest forever According to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He'll execute kings in the days of his wrath and so on. So you have that little story in Genesis 14. You have all of a sudden David popping up with this, you know, this statement as God is speaking to Jesus, speaking to the Messiah, the Lord said unto my Lord, and he's saying, you're a priest forever. God won't relent. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. No other explanation. And then you come to this passage in chapter 7, and after you read this chapter, you'll be an expert on Melchizedek because you'll know everything that the Bible says about him. 4, verse 1 of chapter 7. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being translated king of righteousness, that was what Melchizedek means, and then also king of Salem, mean king of, meaning king of peace. So he said Abraham paid tithes to him, and remember, he was the king of righteousness, he was the king of peace. Of course, both of those terms are used of Jesus as well. It says now, speaking of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So he's saying Melchizedek was, he had no father, no mother, no past. He was just, he went on. And you go, well, how could that be? Now there are two basic views concerning this. Obviously, Melchizedek is a huge picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, he is either a type of Christ, and 
theologians who take that position say that he's not really saying that he didn't have a father or a mother and a genealogy and no beginning of days or end of life. What they're saying is the story doesn't tell you that. So when you look at him, he just pops up out of nowhere, he disappears into nowhere. He was this mysterious character who presented a, an amazing picture of Jesus Christ. It's like, you know, when you have, for instance, Joseph, who is a type of Christ, and it doesn't ever show that he sinned. doesn't mean he didn't sin. It was that they didn't record his sins because he was such a strong type of Christ. So there are people who would say this guy Melchizedek was a great picture of Jesus Christ. But there are a greater, probably a greater number of people who say, look, why not just accept the obvious? Melchizedek was Jesus. He was, and I think he probably was. That's my best guess, but I, I wouldn't be absolutely dogmatic on it. There are lots of appearances. We call them Christophanies or Theophanies, where the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus before Bethlehem, appeared in the Old Testament to people in different forms, as the angel of the Lord. It, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were walking around in the fiery furnace, the fourth figure in there, one that looked like a son of the gods, um, Abraham meeting, you know, bowing down to the one angel who was going to prophesy to him. Lots and lots of examples of Jesus Christ appearing in the Old Testament. And I think probably the story of Melchizedek is one of them. He was a priest. He was a king long before he came as a man. But following with the theme of Hebrews, he actually had to go through what he went through in order to complete himself to accomplish what he had accomplished. But this was like a precursor to it. That, would be, that fits with the most literal understanding of, of saying that he was without father and mother without genealogy, although we say Jesus had a, had a father, but not in the sense of being an offspring. Jesus Christ was from the beginning. And so he didn't like, wasn't born one day. You know, Jesus had a mother earthly wise, but not really because he existed way before Mary did. And so that fits the most literal interpretation of this, that this Melchizedek was just God wanting to let Abraham in on a great secret, a picture that one day would be fulfilled when Jesus Christ would come. See, Abraham, after being so faithful to God, and he's feeling like, man, what's in it for me? God sends Jesus to him and says, here you go, bread and wine. You know, that doesn't mean anything to you right now, Abraham, but someday you're going to remember this story. Kind of like in, the, in the, um, uh, that movie, Back to the Future, when, when, when Marty starts playing a song and he goes, you know, you guys don't like this, but your parents are going to love it. And, and he was playing Chuck Berry. But, you know, it's, it's God saying, Abraham, you're going to just think, man, that guy was kind of different. Hey, where'd that guy come from? He's a king. What's the bread and wine? But hey, it's great. And why did I give him a tenth of everything? What am, hmm, I don't know. And then one day, Abraham found out. And can you imagine how he feels? Jesus? You're the, pro you're the prophesied seed. You were the one that came actually from my loins. You're the one who, God, I was wondering if I was ever going to have a kid. And then it's you. And you met me back then. Like Marty McFly meeting his mom, you know. And it's like, wow, this is, <laughs> I don't know where this is coming from. But he's going, this is incredible. Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. 
And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they freaked and they wanted to kill him for saying that. But see, Jesus was going, you know, Abraham, Abraham's your father. We ran into each other before. And they're going, what? You're not, you're not old enough. Abraham's been dead for a long time. What are you talking about? And he goes, no. Someday, if you have a chance to ask Abraham, you ask him and he'll say, yeah, he am before I was. I, you know, it's, it's that. It's one of those great little flash pictures that was there and nobody really understood it. It was just stuck in the Bible. And until Jesus Christ came and then it was revealed to the author of Hebrews and, and to David in the Psalms that, that Melchizedek is going to pop up again. He isn't just a priest temporarily. He's a priest forever. He's going to be a priest forever. And yet to be our high priest, he had to become one of us. He had to atone for our sins, die, rise from the dead. And so here he's just going, look, you're going back to some old priesthood that never worked anyway. It wasn't even good when it was good. It didn't work. Blood, blood of bulls and goats, they can't save people. They can't take away sins. But Jesus Christ is a priest of a higher order. And he goes on to develop that in the, in the rest of this chapter and just says, Hey, you've got your Levitical priesthood, and you might say, Jesus, he can't be a priest. He's not a Levite. Hey, he was a priest long before that. He goes on to say that, that the Levites paid tithes to Melchizedek when they were within the loins of their father Abraham. Said, look, generations before the Levites were born, Abraham bowed down and, and blessed and offered his offering to the Melchizedek. And so this is way bigger than what you think. The, the, the piddly, goofing around kind of priesthood that never did really make it, that was supposed to be a picture of this. But that couldn't cut it. That couldn't do it. And so he says in verse 5, Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is from their brethren, though they came from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Again, Jesus was not a Levite. He was of the tribe of Judah. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Here, mortal men receive tithes. Now these priests are receiving tithes, but there he receives them from them. And they're witnesses of it. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? So he's saying, if the Aaronic priesthood was sufficient, then what's David talking about when he quotes God saying, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There's going to be a higher priestly line that predates the Aaronic, the Levitical priesthood, and that postdates it as well. He goes, why would they have another? What, what's Melchizedek for? What's the order of Melchizedek all about if the Levitical order was sufficient? And so he says, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. 
And it's yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing complete. On the other hand, there's the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they've become priests with, they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So none of the sons of Levi became a, a priest by being sworn in. They were born in. But they're saying he was sworn in by God himself. God says, hey, I'm promising you can take it to the bank. This is on my word. I will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety, a guarantee of a better covenant. He goes on to say there were priests and they didn't last. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore... This great verse, verse 25, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He says, understand this, those priests, they were temporary. And what they did, it couldn't last. It didn't work. Everybody knows if it worked, you wouldn't have to keep doing it. They wouldn't have to, more and more and more animals wouldn't be herded in there to be killed. Day after day after day after day. But he said, a, a priest who's a priest forever, a priest who doesn't have to atone for his own sin, that's somebody who can do something that'll last. And he says, as a result, because of the kind of, of high priest that Jesus Christ is, he can save to the uttermost, completely, totally. Billy Sunday quoted this verse, but he said, he saves to the guttermost. And that's pretty good, too. And if you don't realize you're part of the guttermost, then, you know, you need to look at yourself a little closer because every one of us, when he saves us, we had nothing to offer. There was no righteousness that we could present, no gift, no offering. We couldn't come on our own and do anything for God that's worth anything. And yet, because he did it all and because he promised, then he can save to the uttermost. And that's something that we can hang on to. What that means is he doesn't just save good people, he saves awful people. And there really aren't good people anyway. I mean, comparatively so. But there is none that doeth good. No, not one. And yet he says, you can't sin so much that I won't save you. You can't do so much that, that you put yourself into a category where, well, it's just too late for you. And the glorious truth of here in chapter 6, we're reading about people who would want to walk away from God and they might even put themselves in a place where it's impossible to be renewed to repentance. There's no opportunity for them. And yet, we see our high priest who can save to the uttermost. And so no one ever has to worry that they've gone so far that God can't save them. If you care about it, it's because the Holy Spirit's convicting you and you can still be saved. God will, you know, and, and we, we, we're, we often want to be cautious and go, well, don't play up the grace too much. I've had people come to me and say, you know, if I go out and have an affair and, you know, cheat on my wife and, and I marry this other girl because I'm really attracted to her and she's really, you know, 
Um, well, my wife's 50 and she's 25, and, and you know, and, and what would happen to me if I do this? Or, you know, I really miss the drugs, and I was just wondering if, if you know, once in a while, what would happen to me if I went and just got into drugs a little bit, just, you know, just for the fun of it? Would God still forgive me? Would he still love me? What would happen if, you know, we're struggling financially in our family, and the bank's sitting there with all kinds of money. It's insured by the FDIC. Nobody loses. The government prints more money. So if I rob a bank, will God still forgive me, even if I don't give the money back? And we ask these kinds of questions, and yet none of us really wants to hear the answer because we know what the answer is. And you can twist it and turn it and play with it all you want. But Jesus Christ, who saves to the uttermost, if you go have an affair, if you go rob a bank, if you go do anything, get yourself loaded, bombed out of your mind, the fact is, if you come to him, he will forgive you. And if you have a problem with that, take it up with him. I don't like it. It doesn't seem like a very good deterrent. A God who says, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. No, I don't say that, man. People could misunderstand it. They might want to go sin. If that's the way you're thinking, if you're thinking that you need to not sin because, you know, God wouldn't forgive you if you won't, then you don't know him. You don't understand him. And you also, if you're so nervous about grace that you wouldn't want to tell someone that if they sin and, and repent that God will forgive them, then you don't understand his repentance and forgiveness package because he's the one who says that hey, I know it's my blessing, it's my goodness that brings people to repentance. And if you understand how much God loves you, it will not cause you to then go take advantage. Paul said that, you know, so should we sin that grace would abound? He said, meganoita in the Greek, no way, God forbid in the King James. It's like, no, of course not. When you see how much he loves you, then you're going to take advantage of it? I mean, are you going to deliberately stab somebody in the back just because you know they'll still love you anyway, that kind of love makes a difference in our lives. And if we really understand his love, we won't walk away. If we really understand the kind of a God that he is, we're going to go, I want to be as close to him as I can. I don't want to take advantage of him and treat him like he's some kind of a fool. I respond to that kind of love. And if that love doesn't touch your heart, then maybe you don't understand it at all. And I don't, you know, the Bible talks a lot about people falling into sin. People who deliberately go into sin. You know, in the Old Testament law, you couldn't be forgiven if you sinned on purpose. If you said, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. There was no sacrifice for that kind of sin. But Jesus Christ, his grace, he saves to the uttermost. He will forgive sins, even those sins that you do willingly. But I don't believe that if you understand who he is and you understand his goodness, I don't believe you'd be able to do it. I don't think you could just say, you know, Dave, I'm going to put some of your message into practice tonight. And I think I'll just go knock off the 7-Eleven on the way home just to see if I could do it. And I'll ask God's forgiveness. I don't think you could do it. Go ahead and try. Anybody who wants, you have my blessing. If you pull it off, probably going to hell. No. I don't think you could really do it seriously. But if it happens, I would rather... You know, not misrepresent God. And he says, I save. 
That's what his name means. That's what he does. And if we begin to look down our noses at people who sin, and we start to come to the conclusion that, oh, they do that, so they're not a Christian, be careful. Because from a divine, eternal, heavenly perspective, the angels can't believe the stuff that you and I do, despite what he's done for us. And if we see our own sin for what it is, then we realize we're all in the same boat. We need to be saved to the uttermost, to the guttermost, because that's, that's where we are apart from him. And his emphasis is always on what he wants to do for us. That's what touches our heart. That's what makes the difference. For such a high priest was fitting, appropriate for us. He's holy, harmless. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. He's innocent. He's undefiled. He's separate from sinners. And he has become higher than the heavens. And he doesn't need daily as these high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For he did it once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. He is the kind of high priest who he did it once and it's accomplished. And now, yes, he ever liveth to make intercession for us, but he's at the right hand of the father sitting down. He doesn't have to keep arguing on our behalf. We don't have to worry about if one time we do something and he can't come up with a good excuse for us. Because as he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, there in the courtroom of heaven, the defense has already rested. It's already accomplished. It's been done. It's been paid for and he's just sitting there. And for us, that's what our salvation rests on. That's the anchor of our soul. That's the basis of our hope that he's already made the case and that he ever liveth as long as he's alive. And he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As long as he is and forever is a long, long time, then we're okay with him if we know him, if we've entered into a relationship with him. Now in chapter 8, quickly we covered most of this on Sunday morning and I'd encourage you to get the tape if you weren't here because um, not because I did such a great message, but because it's an awesome passage and some awesome truths here. But he says, now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also have something to offer. If he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Only priests who offer gifts according to the law. And they serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. God said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. What he's saying here is, he says, look, the point I'm trying to make is the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that which we just studied in Leviticus. He says, that tabernacle was a model. It wasn't the real thing. Blood in, in, a, in a tent made out of skins can't forgive sins. That was simply a picture. And the reason that they had to make it exactly the way they were told to is that this was a model for something very real that was in heaven. 
We don't have time to go into that when we get to Revelation. You'll see it clearly that, that everything that was in the tabernacle was a picture of something that was going to exist in heaven. And so God said, make it exactly that way. But he said, look, that was old. There's a reality that's in heaven now, a true tabernacle where God lives, where his glory rests, a throne that's greater than the than the Ark of the Covenant, greater than anything that Indiana Jones ever dreamed of. And he said, that's in heaven, that's the real deal. Now understand this, the old thing, that's old covenant. You've entered into a new covenant, and that's so much better. And then this passage that we went over Sunday, we won't read it again, but um, he says, look, the old covenant was inferior. And so there was a new covenant that was promised way back in Jeremiah. And the essence of that covenant was God said, look, you had instructions on stone tablets, but I am going to take my law and I'm going to write it on your heart and in your mind. And that prophecy concerning how the Holy Spirit would work in our lives, leading and guiding us, is what makes Christianity different than every other religion. Because we are not following rules. We are not living to obey rules. The Bible is here to confirm to us that which the Spirit ministers to us in our hearts. But he doesn't want us to live with a bunch of just do's and don'ts, rules and regulations, a bunch of strong ethical principles with arguments to back them up. He wants us to live by the Spirit of God. He wants us to listen to him as he speaks to us within our hearts. And yes, there is a problem. There, and someone wrote me an email and asked me about this, and I'll, I'll get back to them tomorrow. But they said, you know, but doesn't the Bible say the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked? How do we listen to God speaking to us in our heart where his law is written? Well, that's absolutely true. And that's why earlier when we talked about the word of God in, in Hebrews 4, being able to divide between the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, the thoughts and intents of the heart, we listen to God. And then we look at the word and we go, wow, look, the word is confirming what God was telling me. And then we go, you know, I don't have to call to every man an answer every time I want to know whether I should buy a new car or not. I, I could just listen to God. Now, I just got that $60,000 Hummer and it doesn't fit in my garage. And I'm thinking, did God really want me to get that thing? And then you go, hmm, maybe it wasn't God. But he wants us to get to the point where we listen within our heart to what he's telling us. And then the word just confirms it to us. And we can walk around. We don't have to memorize the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit is with us. Working in us. Speaking to us. Leading and guiding us. And, and that's the new covenant living. And that's the way he wants us to live. Are we going to make mistakes? Absolutely. It's a scary concept to say, just listen to the Spirit of God and do what God's telling you to do. Because people do some really kooky things thinking it's the Spirit of God. People will say, if your hand offend thee, cut it off, and they'll cut off their hand. I've known a few people who have done that. And you go, well, guy, why don't you just shut up about listening to the Spirit? Listen, you cannot guarantee that, that, that kooky people aren't going to do kooky things, that sinful people aren't going to do sinful things just because you're having a rule against it. People were sinning under the law as well. But are we going to sit here and say, you got to be really careful. I want to caution you. Be careful what you listen to. It might not be the Spirit. It could be Satan. We need to have 10 steps to how to find out whether it's God or not. No. You listen to God and you do what he says. And if you do something stupid, you'll get over it. It'll be okay. You've been, if you're living under the law, you're doing stupid things too. 
So it's not like it's a big improvement, but we need to learn to grow in the Lord. To the, we need to learn to grow to the point where it's like, I know what to do. And I have one expert telling me this and another one telling me this, and they can fight it out. I don't even do that. I just, I feel like God's leading me to do this, so I'm going to do it. I feel like the Spirit's guiding me, and I'll take that. And I always tell people when they come to me, look, do you do what God tells you to do. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't listen to what everyone else says. Submit it to the word and see if God convicts you. But don't let people and their trips convict you. Don't let somebody else's law, don't let somebody else's rules tell you what to do. God is able to speak to you. And the new covenant says he will do just that. And if you learn to listen to him, you learn to recognize his voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And if we learn to listen to him, it's the most important skill that we could learn in life, to, to go before God and to listen to his voice. And it sounds really kooky, weird, and mystical, and you may be uncomfortable with it, but you guys, that is the new covenant. Deal with it and learn to do it. And let the word of God do what it's supposed to do. The, the people, as I said, I don't want to preach my Sunday morning message again, but I'll make this point. The New Testament Christians who turned the world upside down didn't have the New Testament. All they had was listening to God. All they had was being sensitive to the Spirit. And look what God did through them. God provided his word later as a wonderful confirmation of what he had already been telling them. And don't think that because we have the Bible, that this somehow is an owner's manual that you can find all the rules for what you're supposed to do. God never intended it to be that way. That's the old covenant. It didn't work. The point of it was that it wouldn't work. And there are a lot of churches today who would tell you there are just these absolute rules. Know this, know that. You can't do this, you can't do that. It's all about learning, 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 learning. And once you get all the rules down, you'll be a good little Christian. And that is old covenant. That's not the way we are to live. I am not to live my life by rules. I'm to live my life by the Spirit. It's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. And walking in the Spirit will cause me to not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you don't like that, if it's a little too loosey-goosey for you, it's a little too dangerous, then just go join a religion. The New Covenant Christianity, that's the way it works. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are above all else. The only true God, the only one that has a right to lead and guide us. And Lord, and, and I, I mean this reverently, Lord, but you're dangerous. You're not safe. And I love that about you. I so appreciate it that we have to hang close to you, we have to listen really carefully, or we will miss the whole point of life. God, would you in our lives, by your Spirit and through your Word, begin to speak to our hearts what you promised you would. Lead and guide us and help us to recognize your voice when we hear it. Help us to not have to argue and to not have to get reasons pro and con and all about what we do but help us to learn to listen to you and hear your voice so clearly that more and more as we as it's confirmed in your word as we listen to you we just have such a freedom 
of just living our lives every day and, and, and trusting what you are ministering to our hearts. But God, our hearts can fool us and we need your word to keep us honest. Help us to be open enough when you correct us, but help us to look for that work of your spirit in our hearts that you promised was a part of the new covenant. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Thank you.